Would you join me in the prayer for illumination? Almighty God, through your own Son, you overcame death and opened us to the light of eternity. Enlighten our minds and kindle our hearts with the presence of your Spirit, that we may hear your words of comfort and challenge in reading of the Scriptures. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. <clears throat> our scripture comes from the Gospel of, of Mark, chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they could go and anoint Jesus' dead body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they came to the tomb. They were saying to each other, who's going to roll the stone away from the entrance for us? When they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, and it was a very large stone. Going into the tomb, they saw a young man in a white robe seated on the right side, and they were startled. But he said to them, don't be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been raised. He isn't here. Look, here's the place where they laid him. Go, tell the disciples, especially Peter, that he is going ahead of you into Galilee. You will see him there just as he has told you. Overcome with terror and dread, they fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were too afraid. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So um, have you noticed that there are two holidays today? There's one that you're all here for, Easter. And there's another one. It's a unofficial holiday. It's a holiday that pranksters, jokesters, folk who love the German word schadenfreude, um, love. April Fool's Day, right? Kind of odd, right? The Easter, the date of it moves around. It's based upon, I think it's the first full moon after the vernal, or equinox. Can't remember. It's on the calendar. Use Google. <laughs> but apparently today the two converge, which is fascinating to me. I have a little bit of advice for those of you who have young children who are trying to figure out how best to honor the tradition of Easter and yet also uh, make sure that your kids uh, look over their shoulder every April 1st. <laughs> it's easy. Don't try to do them separately. You pull those suckers together, right? So later this afternoon when you go to have your egg hunt for Easter, don't hide any eggs but still send them out with great enthusiasm about the eggs they're going to find. It'll help them not to trust you very much in the future. I like to think of myself as someone who loves the idea of April Fools, but not actually the visceral experience of being the one who's fooled. I mean, seriously, I, I mean, if there were to be a play, uh, um, a movie of um, my um, uh, childhood, adolescence, and young adulthood, some of seminary, and a few of my first appointments in ministry, it would have been, my part to play would have been rabble rouser number three. 
you, you know, like no name, but way in the back going, yeah, it's a great idea, not me, right? And, and I've had friends who have, you know, filled my seminary dorm room with so many balloons that you open the door and they all come out on you, right? Um, I, and, and it's gotten to the point where I'm like, nope, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Even if you tell me you're not videotaping it, I'm not opening the door. Um, even if you tell me it won't go viral because you are videotaping it, I'm not opening the door, right? You can tell me to eat this. You can tell me to drink that. You can say, hey, whistle after uh, chewing um, a ton of saltine crackers. I don't care. It doesn't matter. Even if my wife were to say, it's perfectly fine. Sorry, not going to be the victim of the joke. I don't know if you feel the same way. I, I have to be honest. I'm not so sure I trust everyone around me. I, I, I know it's a heavy topic to begin with. But recognizing that we live in a world with lots of questions. We live in a world where we're kind of peeking around the corner, trying to figure out what's real, what's not. We, you know, we even talk about um, fake news, right? What's real, what's not? There's a lot of questions. I mean, I could understand if you're a little bit um, anxious about opening an Easter egg this afternoon, because somebody may be combining the two holidays. Now, uh, what I love about this particular story, Mark 16, 1 through 8, um, is that it is one of the Easter stories that causes for me to have lots of questions. Uh, it it uh, raises more questions for me than it actually answers sometimes. I mean, just take, for example, the way it ends. Mark 16, 1 through 8. You, you can cheat. It's in your bulletin, right? The, the ending, verse 8, is, and they went home and told no one, how did you and I get here? If they went home and told no one, how did you and I get to hear the story of the empty tomb? And it's really clear. It's not like it's ambiguous. I mean, I, I have a teenager, you know, if she doesn't do the things I ask her to do, she'll say, well, dad, it just really wasn't clear. <laughs> but it's pretty clear in this passage, right? Jesus says to Mary, go and tell the disciples. Pretty clear, go and tell. Especially Peter. And let everyone know. And they left in a hurry and told no one. It's my first question. How did we get to hear the story? Now, some scholars say that it's an artificial ending for Mark chapter 16. The, 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 the end of uh, the Gospel of Mark um, could have included a number of more stories, but because the way the scrolls were made, you were most likely, um, if you were a, a uh, archaeologists um, to find that the beginnings and the ends of these kind of scroll-based manuscripts uh, could be lost because you're scroll, right? So, so there could be more to the story, but I just want to say, wouldn't it be horrible to be Peter when they finally tell the story and they come up and they say, yeah, Jesus said we should tell everybody, but especially you. And Peter's thinking, denied him three times, didn't do what I was supposed to do. This is good. He's out of the grave. Not so sure about this one. Another question that I have uh, about uh, the story is, is we love in our current culture to question, did it really happen? Was it historical? I have two things about Mark 16 that really kind of pull up for me some of those questions um, and answers them. You know, what's interesting is uh, throughout all the Easter stories, not just Mark, you have all of these folk trying to explain it away. I mean, if I was working on a really good cover-up hoax story, a generation after Jesus dies on the cross, I wouldn't be doing this kind of, oh, well, you know, 
we thought he was the gardener, but it was really Jesus. Or, you know, um, he wouldn't let us uh, hug him. You know, you've got Peter saying, why are the grave clothes all folded up? I mean, you've got everybody and their dog really trying to explain it away, trying to get rid of the evidence because they really don't know what just happened. I mean, sure, there's a little bit of an idea of what resurrection might be. And sure, for three years, Jesus tells them over and over again, I must suffer and die and be raised on the third day. But it never connected for them. They expected Jesus would be a revolutionary leader, that he would kick out the Romans, that he would end the occupation, that it would no longer be Pax Romana, it would become Pax Christi. But instead, Jesus died on a cross. That's painful to watch. It's like, um, you know, yay, we're going to take over the world. And the next thing you know on, you know, your Facebook events, it says, meet at Huntsville State Prison, you know, and, and your leader's electrocuted. But this doesn't make sense to them. So why do they keep explaining it away? Why not just claim the language? Why, I mean, did somebody not get the talking points memo? I mean, you know, it seems like it would be easy to tell a concise story. The last question that kind of brings up for me and, and what I love about the story of Easter um, is just the inability of people to talk about it very well. I mean, you have, um, you have Thomas who misses out on one of the resurrection appearances of Jesus. Um, he's, they're all in the upper room. Jesus shows up. All the disciples are like, woo, we get it, right? But Thomas isn't there. And what does Thomas do? Thomas says, unless I see him, put my uh, hands into his wounds, uh, touch him with my own hands, I don't believe it's true. I mean, that, that is not someone who got the memo. Why can't he talk about it in a different way? You have uh, Jesus showing up to the men as they're walking to Emmaus. And along the way, um, they talk about scripture and uh, the gospel is enlightened to them. And, and that Jesus is known to them in the breaking of the bread, but then he is wished away by the Holy Spirit. Those men, the best they can come up with is our hearts burned inside of us. Oh, come on, can't we do better than that? Isn't there some way to clearly say it? If it was a, a cover-up a generation later, wouldn't they have a better story? And, that, and that's why I think that this, this story of this resurrection event, this story that turns the world upside down, the story that uh, allows us to see that the power and beauty and grace and mercy of Jesus is not just restricted to the Holy Land in a backwater province uh, of Rome uh, back 2,000 years ago. It's this inability to talk about it that, to me, makes it more powerful. It is the veracity of the story that there is no lockstep talking points. So what do you do with the story? The story of Jesus dying on the cross, the story of him resurrecting on the third day, the story of, you know, over a thousand people see him during the post-resurrection stories and testimonies of them seeing him. In fact, a little hook for the next sermon series, we're going to be looking at all those post-resurrection stories. We call it unexplainable. How do you explain the unexplainable? And along that, we're going to look at not just the stories of people who saw Jesus after the resurrection, but we're going to think about how we see Jesus after the resurrection as well. So I'm going to be honest with you. You can say it's probably midlife crisis. You can say it's mid-career uh, blues. Who knows what it is? But how do you preach Easter after you've done it for 20 years in a row? What, what do you say about the story again? You know, what's interesting in our culture and in our denomination is that for easily 50 years, we have preached the Easter message just like this. Humanity sinned. We're going to get death. Jesus died on the cross. We get the opportunity to go to heaven, but you better act right. I mean, is that Easter story? 
This seems like a morality fable that, that sure, um, addresses systematic theology, but doesn't necessarily um, address the real inspirational quality of what it means to us to live in a post-resurrection world. And I really think that there's more to life than just that. There's more to life than just the ticket to heaven. I'm I'm not so sure that the best use of Easter um, is to say, would you like to go to paradise? All right, follow all the rules. There's something that breaks the rules in what Jesus does. There's something in how Jesus moves and walks. In fact, the hardest words that Jesus had to say for anybody while he walked this earth was for those who knew the rules, but it was letter of the law and not spirit of the law. I mean, there's something about Jesus who says that it's not about all those things, but it's about that one thing, about forgiveness. I have to be honest with you that when you think about um, the cross, when you think about Easter, the resurrection, you know, um, some preachers make it out to be that that's the last page of the Bible, that that's the, the some ultimate moment, that that is where it's at. But you know, there's, there's books and stories and pages after that. I mean, pick where you want to. You could say, no, really, the last um, scene is the ascension when Jesus goes up into the heavens and sends the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. You could even move down further into the road and talk about Revelation. In fact, that's my favorite, Revelation 21, that I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the old heaven and the old earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, Jerusalem, adorned as a bride for her groom coming down out of the skies. The story of the gospel is not about if you play your cards right, you get fire insurance, but rather the story is about the opportunity to be a part of the new kingdom of God, to be in and about this place where power does not make right, where um, forgiveness and grace are not weakness, but strength, where we live in a place of hope and grace and love. I mean, think about it. There's no disciple who hears about Jesus' resurrection and goes, yes, ticket to paradise. And none of them. They say, Jesus has risen. Go tell somebody, right? I mean, this is one of those great evangelistic pushes. When we get to Pentecost, Peter preaches to five, 5,000, 500. There's not a detail that, I have, that I've met that I can't forget. A lot of people, right? And they say, oh my gosh, these disciples, they're drunk. And, and Peter says, no, we've just seen the power of the resurrection. And we want you to hear about it too. Do you see the difference there? It's less about fire insurance and more about a story, a passionate story that you have to tell. I mean, even if the world's against you, you have to tell it. Even if you think that life is plotting against you, you have to tell it. Even if those around you say that it's a myth, it's a, it's a great story, it's a morality play, you still have to tell it because you've seen the risen Jesus. And to be honest, um, the way I like to see Easter talked about, the way I like to see uh, Christianity or faith talked about is, you know, some preachers do this whole self-congratulatory victory lap on Easter. We won! You know, it's like, um, hey, you didn't know it, but we've been cutting the, the net off the rim for the final four of faith. We won, right? That Easter is about that great victory that happened way long ago, which means that you and I don't have to do anything. We just get to take the congratulatory victory lap. We love to talk in Western civilization about how Christianity has been right in the place where everybody should be. We've been with kings and emperors. We've been with queens. We've been with explorers. We've been about manifest destiny. We've been about, um, you know, the, this kind of great, uh, uh, this great project that God will bless all of us. 
But I have to say that when I look at stories of Jesus, I don't see stories of Jesus with kings and queens. What I see, especially on Easter Sunday, is that he is roaming a cemetery, comforting those who have grieved the loss of a friend. That's the kind of Jesus I think that we serve. It's the kind of God I think that we serve. Not, Not a God that's hanging out in the halls of power or the places of piety, but rather walking and being in the places where people hurt. Uh, Shortly after Easter, we find Jesus where? On a beach, cooking breakfast for fishermen. Fishermen who quite likely didn't get Easter off that year. Uh, and, And he spends the time working with his team, his disciples. He looks Peter in the eye, right? This is Peter who said, oh Lord, even if everything falls away, I will never leave you. But he left him three times. And remember that whole especially tell Peter thing? It wasn't about, ooh, Jesus is going to get you. But rather, it was, come here. Let me feed you breakfast. Let me look at you eye to eye. Let's sit knee to knee. And let me ask you, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, I love you. Asks him three times. I know when I do that with my 14-year-old, she's not really happy. But, but for this, it worked with Peter, right? Because in Greek, there are different words for love, right? Um, Peter, are you my friend? Yes, Lord, you know I am. Peter, um, do you trust me? Yes, Lord, you know I do. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord. You see, what, what, what Jesus was doing wasn't hanging out with the powerful. He was making sure that his friends knew that they were forgiven. It's a powerful message. I don't think that faith, I don't think that Easter is really like a nanny nanny boo boo, spike the football in the end zone and go home and have some ham. I really think Easter is that great revolution, that great commissioning, that great sending out of those who have experienced the passion of a resurrected Christ and cannot do anything else but spread the news. You want to answer the question about what in the heck did the women do, right? Mark 16, verses 1 through 8, right? Verse 8 says they went home and told who? Nobody. Yeah, they told somebody. They told somebody because you, you can't get away from this story. You, you can't get away from this story. I, I mean, even if you think everything's lost, you got to believe that a God who takes things that are dead, things that are lost things that feel as if they have no purpose, God takes those and breathes life into them. He resurrects the dead. He gives purpose to those who have lost meaning. That those things that are lost, what he finds them and takes them home. This is not a God of the powerful. This is a God of the underdog. This is a God who sees everything has value. And now, to be honest, like if you are in a place that things are difficult, right? I mean, maybe it's a diagnosis, maybe it's a divorce, maybe it's a disruption in your life, maybe it's, um, it, it, it's, it's a death that you're grieving. It's interesting that there all starts with D. Um, if you're in that place, it's easy to think that Jesus has, has left the building. He has moved on. He has gotten on to those folk who seem to get everything right because they're less work. But I'll be honest with you. Jesus is right there, breathing life, bringing about life, forgiving, creating mercy and grace. Now, some of you are saying, how long do I have to wait? Well, you know, some projects take a long time. This one particularly took three days. Maybe it takes longer for you. But I want to be sure that you hear the words. Easter is less 
about a fire insurance ticket opportunity. Uh, Easter is less about a self-congratulatory victory lap for Western civilization. That what Easter is really about is that those of us, you and me, if you feel like you're dead and lost, God's breathing new life into you. That God works best in the silences, in the quiet. Think about those three days. Even if you think there's something in your past, a secret that's going to come out, God loves you. Even if uh, there is something that you have messed up in your marriage and you can't make it right, God loves you. Even if you have made every wrong choice along the way, God loves you. Even if you think no one else can see value and purpose in your life, God loves you. Even if. I got to be honest with you. Maybe you're here under duress because mom made you come. God still loves you. Even if you're here because this is the ticket for candy. Can I get an amen from somebody? (laughs) God loves you too. The story is powerful. You can think it's a great big practical joke that that, that folk way back in the day pulled it all over on us and we've been spending our Sunday mornings sitting in a room listening to a guy like me for a whole generation. Even if you think that, God loves you because he sees value and breathes life into all. I mean, a story like that, you can't not but tell people about it. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.